I heard testimony last week from a man who bluntly stated, God has abandoned me. God has abandoned me. And then he uh, meant to confirm, he wanted to confirm what he meant by disclosing this through a, a, a highlight reel of, of horrors about things that had happened to him and it was uh, more heartbreaking than the saddest country western song you've ever heard. Hospitalized due to a violent car crash. Left him with no kneecaps and no elbows and a ruined back. Sorrows didn't end there though. In fact, they were just really a part of a long set of sorrows which he said had stretched all the way back to his childhood. He said, my mama called me Jezreel. If the name doesn't ring any bells, it was the name of the son of Gomer who was a prostitute and adulterous wife married to the prophet Hosea. Testified that his dad routinely and regularly beat him black and blue. And to make matters worse, his only brother betrayed him by sleeping with his girlfriend and ruined the only relationship he ever counted precious in all of his life. He was a man of unspeakable sorrows. Fifty-six years old, had been living in his car, riddled with severe physical pains, no family, and no friends, and said he felt like he had been abandoned by God. And he had no hope that he would ever know his love. You know what's challenging when you hear stories like that? And if your ears are open, you can hear them every day. What's challenging and what's difficult to hear when you listen to people speak about their misery is to look them in the eye and tell them if they would repent and cry out to God that they'll find and they'll know mercy. Now that's the right thing to say and it's the thing that we must say. We must be gentle and compassionate as we say it, but that's what we have to offer. We don't have anything else. We, we don't have a, a tool chest full of magic words to, to sprinkle over people's lives. Pious sentiments and thoughts and helpful pieces of advice that may help take together their ruined life. No, what we have to offer people is, is Christ's mercy. The problem with that is the word that he just kept using is abandoned. Because it means to be left without protection and care and support. And that's what he said, I feel like happened to me. And the receipts he had to confirm that belief was the misery that was his life. So how do we come alongside of people like that? With all of their tragic and painful misery and experiences and tell them that if they cry out to God for mercy, they will find a gracious Heavenly Father. Providentially, I was studying Psalm 88 and 
Well, I believe this just might be one of those passages you would take them to. If there was ever a passage in Scripture where we heard a believer basically say, I have been abandoned by God, Psalm 88 is it. There are only two passages in all of the Lament Psalms that end without any note of confidence or assurance of divine deliverance. This one and Psalm 39. And believe me, when I say this one ends even more harshly than that one does, because that psalm basically ends with the psalmist saying, just shine your face upon me so I can die. This one ends in the Hebrew in the very last word, darkness. Darkness. And I'm going to show you how to translate it correctly in a moment. And you're going to realize just how miserable this all was. You see, darkness summarizes the whole tenor and message of this psalm. And let me just tell you, John Calvin was a tremendous help to me as I thought about this psalm and how to preach it because maybe your ears will prick up when you listen to his comment. He said, We should rest assured that the Spirit of God by the mouth of Himon has furnished us with a form of prayer for encouraging all the afflicted who are on the brink of despair to come to himself. Translated, we could put it like this. John Calvin says that God gave Himon such a miserable and horrible life so that the Spirit of God would come upon him and inspire a psalm of encouragement to you this morning so that you can say, in all of your misery and feeling like you have abandoned by God, it could be worse. And because it's not, you are to be encouraged to take what little bit of faith you have and draw near to the throne of grace. Psalm 88, and this is what I judge to be the main point of this psalm, is that God sometimes gives His people a miserable life in order that He may exorcise them to identify with Jesus Christ. That's the point. God sometimes gives people such misery in their life that He will exorcise them to identify with Jesus Christ. We're going to expound that in three-part lament, faith, and resolution. Lament, faith, and resolution. and the, the greater portion of the body of Psalm 88 is just really lament. And there's four categories of, of lament here. And uh, these categories, rather five, they're all categories of abandonment. And so I've entitled this message, Abandoned by God. But there are five categories of abandonment here. And, and I want us to, to work our way through them so we feel the weight and the force of this psalm. And the very first category of abandonment that we find here in Psalm 88 is abandoned to die. Abandoned to die. Now before we leap into that, I want you to look at verse um, 3 here and see what might be the overarching theme of this psalm as the psalmist says, My soul has had enough troubles. See, we know right away that when we've transitioned from praise and 
and prayer requests to, to this verse. And the first thing we get is a soul full of trouble that this is going to be one of those really dark songs. And the thing that's so important to grasp hold of here is the word for. The word for. It's the very first word in verse 3 in your translation. And the reason why it's so important to lay hold of is because that word for looks back to the prayer of verse 2 and works forward into verse 3 in the rest of the psalm. And the point of it is to say he is connecting his prayers to his life. Anybody can pray verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. I bet that you're not going to use that to pray over your food this afternoon. But it is the kind of prayer that would seem to fit in a whole range and set of life circumstances. But here it's a blood earnest cry, and we'll come back to it more in a moment. But you see, it's a very intense and impactful and powerful prayer request. And then he says, Four, now I'm going to explain why I'm praying this to you, God. And so whatever follows is the explanation for that. And the thing that really, I think, captures the essence of the pain of this psalm is he says, My soul has had enough troubles. Well, that word troubles there is the word for evil or disaster. What's harmful and painful, it speaks of the most severe kind of, of suffering. It is a summary term for, for basically all the rest that he is going to talk about here in this psalm. And the thing that, that he says here about these evils or these troubles is that they have had an affect on his soul. And the soul is the interior life of man. The soul, we could see, is really the essence of the man and the person. It's the thing that God creates and gives to us. And it is the thing that makes each and every person unique from everyone else. It is the seat of the image of God in us. The soul is the, the deepest part of of ourselves. And the thing that he says about it is my soul is full. I quibble with the New American Standard Translation at this point when it says it's had enough. Well, surely it's had enough, but that's not what it says. Because the word here, full, generally is used to, to speak about somebody sitting down to a meal. And imagine somebody... Or imagine yourself just, just absolutely famished. And, and you've been hungry like you were never hungry before in your life. And you sat down to a table full of food. And you ate until you couldn't eat another bite. That's how this word is used in Scripture. Fully satisfied because of an abundance. This is the word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he chooses to describe himself. I have been filled with trouble to abundance, to excess, to the brim, max capacity. 
Okay, that's what this psalm is talking about. That's the maybe the summary for what follows here. And, and now what he immediately moves into is this first category of abandonment, which I spoke about here, which is abandonment to death. And, and the language of death just predominates here in verses 3 through 6 as he unfolds the first set or cycle of problems. And there are no less than seven references to death here. So, so let's just work through them very quickly. First of all, in verse 3, in 3b, he refers to Sheol. He says, my life has drawn near to Sheol. In the Old Testament, this is the predominant term for the afterlife. And he says, this is how I feel. I feel like I am on the brink of death or Sheol or the afterlife. Then in verse 4, we get, I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. And the word for pit in Hebrew here means a hole dug in the ground so you can bury someone in it. And he says, I am reckoned, I am accounted as, I am regarded as dead while I'm still alive. Verse 5a, he said he has been forsaken among the dead. And here we have a word that is used in the most ironic sense you could possibly think of because the word forsake here means to to free somebody from slavery. That's how it's used throughout the entire Old Testament. It means to, to free somebody from slavery. And of course, the irony here, he says he has been freed to go to be among the dead. These things don't fit. They don't comport, really, do they? We wouldn't say, oh, they're free now, they're dead. Verse 5b, the slain lying in the grave. And the verb here for slain means to, to be killed with graphic violence. The grave is self-explanatory. It's the place for the interment of the dead. In 5d, they're cut off from your hand. Cut off means to lose family association. And so here, he is cut off from, um, from experience of relationship with God as he's standing on the brink of the grave. In verse 6a, you have put me in the lowest pit. The lowest pit would be the deepest place you could possibly think of. It's simply a metaphor for the grave, you come into 6b. He says he is in the darkest in the depths. The word depths there is typically used for the oceans. So you could think about the deepest place of the oceans, and it's a metaphor for the deepest place of death, the underworld, the grave. So here we have seven different words for death or images for death. It predominates what's on his mind. Well, you can usually tell by the words people use. If somebody tells you, I feel like I've been abandoned by God, and then the next words out of their mouth is, I'm Esau, I'm this, I'm that, I'm cursed, I've got all these problems in my life, you can fairly safely believe that's what that person thinks. Well, this is what he's talking about here. I feel like I've been abandoned by God to the grave. And the affect on him is made plain in verse 4 in the second part. I have become like a man without strength. Well, that's perfectly reasonable. You show me somebody that looks into the grave and then that cold, icy emptiness of the tomb and say, show me somebody who stands in front of that and feels strong and vigorous. So the first set of um, 
sufferings and lamentation here about abandoned to death. Now add insult to injury, abandoned to wrath. Look at verse 7. No sooner has he spoken of being or sensing that he's been abandoned to death. Here's his next complaint. He's been abandoned to wrath. Your wrath has rested upon me and you have afflicted me with all of your waves. This is clearly about divine wrath because he says your wrath, capital Y, your. Wrath here is the anger of God and the thing that he says about the anger of God is it rests upon me and that may not be the best translation but if, it, if you could, maybe just think of of a 500-pound dumbbell across your shoulders and whether you could stand up underneath it. Well, even if you could this morning, and there may be somebody here, even if you could, it doesn't feel light. It doesn't feel light, and that's the sense of the verb, is it squeezes and presses by force. He says it's like waves, like a tsunami crashing over him. And then I want you to notice how he speaks of, of the fear of divine wrath. The fear of divine wrath. Drop down to verse 16. This comes up all over again. It just can't seem to leave his mind. We, we know he's speaking about wrath because verse 16a says it's burning anger. But that means you're entitled to look back at verse 15b and see this is what he regards as wrath. It's terror. Your terrors have destroyed me. And this word here is is the term that you would use for the greatest sensation of emotional pain. You think about something in your life that has made you feel the most emotionally painful you can possibly think of, and that's this word. Maybe you are distraught. Um, Maybe... um, Maybe you were wounded by somebody else. Maybe you were betrayed. You, you just think of the thing that, that cut you most deeply to the depth of your soul. And that's what he says. God's wrath feels just like that. It reminds me kind of when, when you go to the doctor, they, they say, well... Can you tell me how bad is your pain? And you say, I don't know. It's not good. Well, can you put a number on it? You know, like four, five, or six, or seven. I never know how to answer that. I'm sure Oscar can tell you the same thing. Anybody else in here who deals with this all the time? I'm pretty sure you don't know how to distinguish between seven or eight or nine. But, but now apply that same scale to emotional pain and say, well, what's your pain, Hemon? And if he were responding to that, he'd say, this one goes to 11. He is overcome. He is ruined by it. Now, here's why. Look into verse 16. Your burning anger, well, it's passed over me. And, and, and the thing here about burning is you really need to take this literally. Because um, if you've ever seen somebody severely angry, uh, I mean, angry so bad that their cheeks are flushed with blood and their fire engine red, that's this. Burning anger. Your anger has destroyed me. And it says it's left him in utter ruin. And, and now come back into verse 17. We're back to the, uh, to the tsunami idea. Because he says, 
You have surrounded me like water all day long, and they've encompassed me all together. Now he's describing how the wrath of God feels. It feels like it's attacking him. And the first word means to, to go in a circle around something. And the second word here that you have in verse 17, encompass me, means to just fold me entirely up in it. It's like a tsunami of divine wrath has come down upon his life, crashed over him, encircled him, and enfolded and encapsulated him. So everywhere he moves and turns, all he senses is the fury of the fiery wrath of God. Abandoned to wrath. So while he feels he's abandoned to the grave, one foot in, one foot out, this is what he's feeling the entire time before he's dumped over into the grave. Wrath. Now if that's not bad enough, let's notice the next category. Abandoned to loneliness. Verse 8. You have removed my acquaintances far from me, you have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and I cannot go out. And now he's talking about the social supports of life. This could be family. This could be friends. This could be neighbors. This could be everything that supports you emotionally and psychologically and socially. All of my acquaintances is you've taken away. God, you've, you've plucked up every support system I've had and you've cast it on a hillside a million miles away. And the thing that makes it even worse than that is it's not just that God has removed them. He still feels something of the sense of their presence because he says here in verse 9, you've made me an object of loathing to them. So I am detested by them. They've been removed from me. And they still look at me as scorn and derision. And then he describes how it feels. I'm shut up and I can't go out. It's like a prison cell. I'm confined by my sense of social isolation. Verse 18. Yeah, it's not a very fun psalm, is it? Let's keep going, though. Verse 18. Verse 18. Uh, you have removed lover and friend far from me. So the first word lover here would be somebody that you have the, the deepest and, and most and strongest affection for. Spouse and perhaps children. You have removed all of them. And also my friends. And again notice the charge. You've done it. God is the one who is responsibly says for his misery. Himon is saying you have abandoned me to die You've abandoned me to the experience of wrath. And you have abandoned me socially. So I am utterly isolated in the midst of the greatest season of sorrow. But we're not done. Here's number four. Verse 15. I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. If you were to come alongside him on in his hospital bed and say, Friend, how are you today? I, I can see things are not going well. I'm, I'm sorry to, to see all of your pain and your suffering. Can, can you tell me how long you felt this way? And he misunderstood you to say, uh, you thought he was, well, two weeks or since I got in the car crash or I got stabbed. He said, ever since I was a kid, I felt just like this. My whole life. My whole life. I could not help but thinking about this man who, who said he was abandoned by God and his mother called him Jezreel. 
A father who physically abused him constantly. There's a lot more suffering in people's lives than, than we talk about. I know, young children, your parents love you this morning. You're blessed. Your mom and dad love Jesus Christ and they love you. And I know you're happy to be in a home where mom and dad give you hugs every day and tell you how much they love you. You're blessed. It's wonderful. It puts a tear in my to think about how many of you have great homes where you're loved. But there are people who aren't. <laughs> there are kids that don't grow up that way at all. This man, you could feel the force of his, his pain. It was lifelong, and that's what Himan says. From childhood, it's been like this. You see, there's no coming alongside Himan's bed and walking down memory lane and talking about the good times. Because he didn't have them. He knew life was short and life was painful. Abandoned to die, abandoned to wrath, Abandoned to social isolation. Abandoned from youth. Now, here's the last one. If we haven't been discouraged yet, let's just come to the very last of our text here in verse 18. My acquaintances are in the darkness. Now, that's a very sanguine, happy interpretation of this. Because it doesn't read that way in the Hebrew. If I could just give you a raw translation of it, it would basically be the people I'm acquainted with. Darkness. That's literally how it reads. There's no preposition in saying my acquaintances are in darkness. That's, that's somebody's translation attempt at this. Literally, it says the people I'm acquainted with, darkness. And, and uh, some scholars make a very convincing case Misery is consuming you, and you feel alone. It's awful to feel alone. And so Psalm 88 has been etched in the stone of Scripture, scripture to tell you that no matter how awful your life is, you're not alone. No matter how filled to the brim your soul is with a sense of afflictions, you're not alone. I realize that feels like cold comfort to you. I don't know where else to begin. Because suffering is real. Pain is real. Sorrow is real. Heartbreak is real. Brokenness is real. We're just really good at covering up with the perfume of a consumeristic culture. We are. We're very good at covering up our miseries with the perfume of a consumeristic culture. And the hope that there might be some product I can buy that will make my life a little bit more comfortable. We really are. It's a really disgusting, weird, psychological, cultural problem we have. We don't face problems. We just find something that can distract us, hopefully. Until we can't. And then what is left to say to somebody like this man who says, I feel abandoned. There is a solution to this. 
But I want us to begin by saying, this is uh, part of the comfort of Psalm 88 to you this morning, that you're not alone on this trail. Kimon has walked it, and countless multitudes of nameless, faceless others have as well. You're not alone. It's important to know. But let's turn to something good. How about faith, huh? We've had lament, but how about faith? And Well, I think that's so important to, to see here. Because as, as dark as Psalm 88 is, and, and boy, it ends on darkness, literally, that's not the only thing here. Because right at the same time when he is lamenting, he's also struggling through it with faith. And so I want to show you quickly how uh, Himan is responding to his misery with faith because that is designed to show us and to teach us that even though I feel this way, I still have some way to deal with it. And that is faith. So notice here, faith expressed. And, and I love how this psalm just bursts open with a very powerful statement of faith. Oh Lord, the God of my salvation, I've cried out to you by day and the night before. But let's not, let's not stop. Let's not, let's, let's not rush into the second one. Let's just stop at the first. Oh Lord, the God of my salvation. Now, in this psalm of lament, we should regard this as the last thing he said in the real order of things. Okay, All that we're going to see here in the faith response is, is the last. And we've already kind of pointed this out because we said the prayer of verse 2 is grounded in the reasons that follow from verse 3 on, which means he experienced all those things first. Okay, Faith is the perspective that colors in the presentation of the sorrows. But, but, but notice here, the very first thing that he says in verse 1 is, Lord God of my salvation. The first thing that he does is confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though he feels abandoned, he's got this internal logic testifying to him based upon the word of God that he really isn't. Because God is the God of his salvation and he can run straight to Jesus Christ. That's kind of the point here is to say, you can look at your own life and you can see this morning, if this is your life, I see all the brand marks of being abandoned, but the reality is I can look at the face of God in Jesus Christ and I know that I have a merciful God who loves me. What he's teaching us to do is the first thing to do when we begin to internalize and digest and and deal with the problem of the misery in our life is, is to look at God in the face of Christ. And know that we have to deal with a God who is merciful and the proof of it is Christ. Our salvation is in Christ. You see, even if darkness is here for today, it's not eternal darkness, right? That's worse. Let's say you live 70 to 80 years of your life and just about all of it is darkness from the time you were a child. What's worse? To have 70 years of a dark life and eternal life of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or 70 years of a good life and eternity in hell and darkness? Well, I think it's self-evident. 
That's the faith affirmation of our psalm here. Right in the midst of it all. There are mercies today to be thankful for. So he, the first thing he does is, is um, express faith. And, and then what does he do? Well, he starts praying. And this is a great thing. Look at verse 2. Um, he says here, Let my cry or my prayer come before you and incline your ear to my cry. And the thing I want us to just note here about these verbs is what incline says. Um, basically, it's a very emotional verb. It's saying, God, look at me. Fix your eyes upon my misery and my isolation and my pain. And then you have the word cry here. And and it is uh, something that indicates to us of the, the character and the nature of his prayer. It's fervent prayer. Again, we typically don't cry out to God over our, our sandwich for lunch. We typically don't, right? We, we cry out to God when we feel like we're facing an immovable, gigantic, overpowering problem. But, but that's the way God works. Remember James 5.16, he says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And it's the word there, effective, which is so strong because it means energy and action. It tells us about the kind of prayer that God uses to accomplish great things. And it's energetic prayer. It is a prayer of fervency. so important that we realize that the means that God has appointed to us is is really crying out. You know, we feel humble about this as believers, right? When people have a problem in their life and they explain it to me like, oh, wow. Get a doctor. I I don't know. This is horrible. And you say, all all I've got is I I can pray for you. (laughs) Kind of, you know, Ham, you know, we're just rubbing our... Like, we got really nothing to give, but I can give you some prayer. I mean, that's, that's all I've got, is I can give you prayer. But that isn't what James says. It says, the effectual prayer of the righteous man. You have everything to give. You have everything to give. I know it doesn't look as fancy as as needles and tubes full of solution and and blinking lights and all of this, but but you have everything to give. Sexual prayer. Fervent prayer. And that's what he does is he prays. He appeals. He exercises his faith. Look at verse 9. My eye has wasted away because of the affliction. I've called upon you every day, O Lord. I've spread my hands out you the reason why this is so important is because of its position Uh, he's just spoken about his miseries abandoned to wrath and abandoned to social isolation and now here's his follow up at verse 9 I cried out I called to you I spread out my hands to you uh It'd be like somebody stranded on an island and uh, they finally see a search helicopter plane 
above them, and, and they're on the ground just waving their hands madly to create some sort of disturbance in the sight field or pattern of whoever's looking down. Crying, I'm, I'm waving my hands at you, God. Look at verse 13. We see some more of this. Oh, Lord, I've cried out to you for help. In the morning, my prayer comes to you. Again, position is kind of important here because in verses 10 through 12, we might have plumbed to the really darkest moments of the psalm. I haven't really covered them, but, but they're, they're cynical sort of questions. Will you perform wonders for the dead? No, we already know the answer to that. Will your loving kindness be declared the grave? No, because we won't talk there. Verse 12, will wonders be made known in the darkness? No. These are very concise, pointed, sharp questions. Right after that, what do you hear from the psalmist? But I. But I. I cried. The thing that really strikes us is the timing. He says in the morning. Why is that important? Well, you might remember Psalm 46.5. God will help her when the morning dawns. Remember the city of God is portrayed as under attack. The people of God, the church, and the psalmist says, God will help her in the morning. The morning is the exercise of the divine power for change and for healing and deliverance. And so he says... Uh, he coordinates and synchronizes his prayer to the time that you know when God acts. So he expresses his faith. He, he appeals out of faith. He exercises faith. But I, I'm sorry. Faith ends dispirited in verse 14. Oh Lord, why do you reject my soul and why do you hide your face from me he's looking for a cause he's looking for a reason and this is just the difficulty of it all isn't it you don't understand why has it been this way seems like there should if I could just know the answer I might feel some relief this guy uh, explained that he'd read the Bible and seemed to be an expert in it, at least in his own opinion. And he said, why in the Bible are all the bad people blessed? He said, Jacob was a shyster. True. Abraham pimped out his wife. True. David murdered Uriah and committed adultery with Bathsheba. True. And yet he said the Bible speaks badly of Ishmael. It speaks badly of Esau. Why? See, you can really get caught up in that world of why. Why is this happening? And the answer to why is it's happening because I deserve every problem and sorrow I have in my life. That's the truth. I deserve everything that I... The only thing that I can't explain is why is there any good in my life? 
careful not to take the bait. Let's be careful not to take the bait. I don't think that's how I'd read the psalmist here. I don't think I'd godly him on it. I'm not taking him that way. He says, why are you hiding my face, your face from me? It's as if he said, I just want to hear a benediction. Remember? Hide your face. Remember the ironic benediction? Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. He said, can't you just give me your benediction? So it's kind of dark and dispirited and dejected. And so that's faith, and he exercised the best that he can in his fondness. So what's the resolution? I hope we're all ready for that now. I, I tried to paint the difficulty as clearly and dr drastically as I could so that we can all agree on what the resolution is. I, I begin here, God sovereignly, this is Calvin, gave Himon a life of misery that the Spirit of God might inspire him to compose a psalm about horrible darkness in order to provide encouragement to the afflicted. He gave Himon so much misery so that he would inspire him, the Holy Spirit to write about it so that you would know on the worst day or in the worst life you could ever possibly live, it could be worse and you're not alone. But I think the main point of our psalm is that God sometimes abandoned us to this intense suffering to exercise us to faith in Jesus Christ. So how do we get to Christ? That should, be our, that should be our question. How do we get to Christ? To me, the answer is darkness. The answer is darkness. Why? Because if you would fast forward to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 34, we read, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How do we connect or move from darkness in Psalm 88, 18 to the cross of Jesus Christ? And the answer is because in the verse before that, in verse 33, in Mark's gospel, we learned that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness was cast over the face of the Lamb. So this is Jesus in the midst of the, of the deepest, blackest abyss of darkness you can possibly imagine. Jesus is in the darkness here. As he cries out here at the outset of the ninth hour, he says in the midst of that darkness, why have you forsaken me? Here he's experiencing the outpouring of God's wrath upon him as he bears the weight of the sins of the world. He sits here on that cross, nailed to that cross, in all of that darkness with all of the sins of divine wrath upon him. And second of all, he's got what? Social isolation. <laughs> And beyond that, if you asked him, how long has your pain been lasting? Well, from my youth, we talk about this under the category of the humiliation and the sufferings of Christ. They took upon himself a true human flesh. Abandonment to the grave, it's coming. Just wait, just a little bit longer. The story tells us he was abandoned to the grave not long after the ninth hour. 
You see, the point of it all is to say that the sufferings which Himon speaks of here were all designed to point forward to the fulfillment of the depths of the deepest human suffering possible by Jesus Christ. He was abandoned to death. He was abandoned to wrath. He was abandoned to social isolation. He was abandoned from youth. He was literally abandoned to the darkness. Psalm 88 is about Christ's sufferings for you. The point of it is to lead us to Christ in the midst of our sufferings and to take refuge in Him. Does that mean that the sufferings will be taken away? No, it does not. It does not mean that. God will give you this suffering. If you don't have it this morning, you should thank the God. You should thank God and express the, your deepest and most sincere gratitude because I guarantee you it's coming for you. What do you need then in that moment? What do you need then in that moment when you begin to experience what Psalm 88 is speaking about of God heaping up sufferings and misery upon you? What you need to know in that moment is that you're not abandoned by God. Because your life is riddled with misery and sufferings and sorrow and brokenness and hurt and pain doesn't mean that God is angry at you. doesn't mean you're abandoned. Think about that word forsaken. Jesus said, as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced it. And he drained that cup of emptiness. It's quite interesting that that very same word seized upon by the preacher in Hebrews chapter 13. He says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. This is the promise of God to every believer. I will never desert you, and I will never forsake you. The promise, first of all, was given to all the people of God in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Not long after that, it was given to Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, as he was given the task of leading the people into the land. And the next, we see it in the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said of himself that he had been forsaken by God, unlike the people of God, unlike Joshua. And now the preacher takes up this same word, and he applies it to you in the midst of all of the nitty-gritty of life, and says, don't worry. Because you know what precedes that? What precedes that is make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I'll never desert you, nor will ever forsake you. You see, the preacher is applying it to people who are experiencing the difficulties and the sufferings of life. And he says to you, right in the midst of your infirmities, just be content and hang on to God and to Christ and to the promises. I will never forsake you. So when you are feeling like you don't have the strength, that the mountains of your trouble are larger than your capacity to bear, to endure, the Word of God says to you, what happened to Jesus won't happen to you. 
because they happened to Christ. He drained the cup of divine wrath. He endured the season of isolation. He rose victoriously over the grave. And he overcame the darkness. Because of that, in the midst of your season of darkness, you can see the ray of light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a freight train coming at you to run you over. It's the promise of God's presence, of His strength, of His help, of His unfailing word of promise that He will abide with you for now and forever. And He will never forsake you.